Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's study is going to take us to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. This chapter is often referred to as the eschatological discourse of Jesus. Uh, eschatological meaning the, the, the discourse on the end times. Uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. We're going to see in Mark chapter 13 that Jesus is more, actually more concerned with the events that are going to happen in the first century and only a little bit of uh, concern with the events with regard to what we call the second coming. And now I've dealt with uh, Mark chapter 13 in my book, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times in chapter 10. Uh, we'll also note that Mark's uh, discourse in Mark chapter 13 is paralleled by the speech in Jesus, of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, as well as in Luke chapter 17 and chapter 21. I noted already briefly that the, uh, the story of Mark 13, or this, this speech of Jesus in Mark 13, is going to be sandwiched between the accounts of two women. The end of chapter 12, we had a woman who went into the temple and gave two small copper coins. The beginning of chapter 14 begins with a woman who anoints Jesus. Both of, the, of these stories appear to be about women. Both of them are women serving in the temple, uh, the woman in the temple treasury and the woman uh, serving Jesus, who's the new temple. In the middle, of course, is Jesus' dis- description about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Jesus is going to take the place of the old temp- temple because it failed to have fruit, or how about this, because it was devouring widows' houses. The, te- the story begins in chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was going out from the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus is leaving the temple. Mark chapter 11, verse 11, had taken us to Jerusalem for the very first time. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says he went into the temple and he looked around. And then it was late, and so he departed for Bethany. Now, in chapter 13, he's leaving the temple for the last time. So probably a a beginning and end of this larger section of Jesus' relationship with the temple. The disciples note, uh, look at the beautiful stones and the wonderful buildings. Uh, these massive stones, uh, Herod had, had been for, for more than 50 years now, had been elaborating and building and expanding the Jewish temple. Uh, though actually, the work and construction of the temple hadn't ended. It didn't, doesn't end until about the year 63 AD. Uh, the enlargement and, and the, making, making this table, uh, temple magnificent. Some of the stones, Josephus tells us, that were used were about 60 feet in length. We've actually discovered some stones that were 42 feet in length, so Josephus may not have been far off. Some of the stones weigh about a million pounds. This was a striking, magnificent edifice. Jesus replies to the disciples and says, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, verse 3 says, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were questioning Jesus privately. Well, tell us, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be fulfilled? Now, Matthew's gospel is going to have the disciples asking a somewhat different question, or maybe asking a second question. You see, the disciples are only asking one question in Mark's gospel. That question is, is when's the temple going to be destroyed? The, the, the secondary question kind of relates to the first one, and that is, what are going to be the signs as to when this is about to happen? In Matthew's gospel, it's going to be, well, when's the temple going to be destroyed, and what are going to be the signs of your coming? Now, even in Matthew's gospel, though we have seemingly two questions, the disciples may well have thought of them as actually one event. 
the, the destruction of the temple is going to be the indication that you're getting rid of the old establishment in order to establish your new kingdom. They perhaps thought that this is, this is going to be this one great event. But Mark's going to make it clear that the destruction of the temple and the timing of Jesus' coming are going to be two separate events. Now, remember, the disciples wouldn't have understood the idea of Jesus' second coming because they didn't think he was going to go anywhere. Uh, they didn't think he was going to die, let alone die and rise again. So the idea of Jesus going away for 2,000 years and then coming back wouldn't have made any sense to them. But it appears that Jesus is giving them an insight. The temple is going to be destroyed in one generation, as we're going to see, according to Mark chapter 13. But that will not be a sign of my coming. That's going to take place later. So the disciples ask us, well, well when will these things be? And what will be the sign about the, when they're going to be fulfilled? Jesus then kind of answers their question in two parts. The first part is going to be found in verses 5 through 23. In these verses, Jesus is going to tell us things that must happen before the end, climaxing and culminating in the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, if he begins in uh, verse 5, J Jesus began to say to them, and then in chapter 13, verse 23, I have told you everything. This kind of marks the beginning and the end of a discourse. Jesus began to say to them in verse 5, I told you everything in verse 23. Jesus is going to answer their question, however, more for the purpose of their own vigilance, more for their own per, uh, understanding and, and uh, relating to their own mission, more than just giving them signs of the times. Jesus is concerned about them and what's going to happen with them. Note verse 5. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. Note in verse 7, do not be frightened. Verse 9, he says, be on your guard. In verse 11, don't be anxious. In verse 18, you need to pray that it won't happen in the winter. Verse 21, when, when someone says, here he is or there he is, don't believe him. In verse 23, take heed. These strong uh, imperatives or commands to, to, of Jesus to the disciples show us that Jesus' concern is on the disciples and they're being on their guard. Now he begins this answer in part one, that the things that must happen before the end, climaxing in the fall of Jerusalem, by giving, telling us in verses 5 through 13, three signs that are not themselves actually indications of the temple's imminent destruction. Verses 5 and 6, the first sign, are going to be false messiahs. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Then he's going to tell us in verse 7 and 8 now, the second sign is going to be wars and natural disasters. They too are not indications of the temple's imminent destruction. He says, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Verse, there'll be earthquakes and famines in various places, and there'll also be famines. And These are merely the beginning of birth pangs, Jesus says. And then the third sign that's also not an indication of the temple's imminent destruction is going to be the persecution of the disciples. Be on your guard, he says in verse 9, for they're going to deliver you to the courts, and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony of the end. Uh, to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't be anxious beforehand. Let me skip down to verse 13. You're going to be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. So these are preliminary signs, and maybe we can even say these are indications that uh, the, the, the temple is not about to be destroyed because they're simply the normal course of events. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been famines and earthquakes in various places. The, the one unique feature of this one is going to be you are going to be persecuted. But in your persecution, it's also not actually an indication of the end. You need to persevere to the end, however. The end is going to come in verse 14. Let me briefly note, by the way, verse 10. It says the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And, uh, 
many will, will indicate, oh, well, once Christianity has gone to every single tribe and, and tongue in the whole world, that's when Jesus is going to return. Well, the first thing to note is that Jesus is not talking about his return at all in this particular passage. At this point in time, the only question on the table is, is when is the temple going to be destroyed and what will be the sign that it's about to be destroyed? The disciples are probably thinking that the destruction of the temple is going to be a time when Jesus actually takes his throne, not realizing he's going to take his throne maybe in the course of a few weeks when he's crucified in Jerusalem. Uh, but there are no indication at all that this is going to be a, and that, these, that these are indications as to when the end is going to happen or when Jesus' second coming is going to happen. Secondly, verses 5 through 13 are, are bundled in the section of, of things that are indications not of the temple's imminent destruction, but just a normal course of events. And don't be alarmed, don't be surprised, don't be frightened, don't be thinking that, oh, he's, a, he's around the corner any minute now, it's going to happen. These are normal course of events. So what does verse 10 mean? The gospel is going to be preached to all the nations. First, well, in the Jewish world, or, and even in the Roman world, uh, the nations would be a reference to uh, the limits of the, of the imperial domination or the, the extent of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, Paul says in the book of Romans that your faithfulness has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. Uh, the whole world there would be a reference to the Roman world. There's no reason to suspect that the gospel has to be first preached to every nation in the world before Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. We know Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 A.D., and the gospel indeed had gone all the way to Spain by the time Paul finishes his ministry, his ministry uh, maybe as late as the year 64 or 65 A.D. Now, verse 14, however, tells us, but when you see a strong contrast. So 5 through 13 might be preliminary events that are not indications of, the, of when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, but verse 14 now changes this tone. When you see the abomination that makes desolation, standing where it, ought, where it should not be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter in to get anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. Now pray that it won't happen in the winter. For in those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God has created until now and never shall. And unless those, the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here, here is the Christ, or behold, there he is, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now again, remember, the disciples are probably thinking that the destruction of Jerusalem is going to be the sign that will, or the time when Jesus is going to take his throne. We find out later he takes his throne in the cross, and the destruction of Jerusalem is something that's subsequent to the cross. But the reference to the abomination that makes desolation is often obscure or difficult to understand for many. Uh, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 to 35, and Daniel chapter 12, verses 8 through 13, all refer to this abomination that makes desolation, and it references apparently a defiling act in regards to the temple. Now, in the Daniel passages, a Gentile ruler is going to come and destroy the daily sacrifices. There'll be a, a time of suffering. After that, the end is going to occur. In both Daniel and Mark, this desolating sacrifice marks the imminent destruction of the temple, accompanied by a time of tribulation that will last until the end. Now, the Jews had a strong conviction, especially in the book of 1 Maccabees, and in the Jewish world, that the Roman general Antiochus, I'm sorry, the Greek general Antiochus IV, uh, had actually committed the abomination that makes desolation in the year 168. 
Jesus seems to indicate, however, that perhaps that was not a complete fulfillment or that there would again be another fulfillment, this appalling sacrilege. The most common explanation is that it refers to the destruction of the temple by the Roman general Titus in September of the year 70 AD. But notice that this is one event that must happen before the end. The end is going to be described in verses 24 through 27. What the, the, the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies, is, as Luke's way of putting it, is not an indication of the end itself, uh, though it's a warning about, there's still this warning about not being deceived. This event only inaugurates the period of the end. Now the end can come. It doesn't mean that the end will come now. It might mean the end is near, uh, but the period of time that follows the, this event is, uh, is undescribed. Notice the disciples are told to flee and to run away. Running away would be worthless if the end was to follow immediately. <clears throat> Luke chapter 21 verse 24 says that this happens until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this abomination that makes desolation, which likely was fulfilled in AD 70 by the Roman general Titus, is something that's a, a prelude to the end, but not an indication of the end. Jesus then goes on in verses 24 through 27 then to tell us that, uh, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the heaven to the far, uh, end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So the first thing Jesus does now is indicate that his coming back, which now we understand, of course, is a coming back, is not to be tied with the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, the disciples were probably this early, probably held to this early Jewish conviction that, that Jerusalem was unconquerable, was indestructible. And so when Jesus tells the disciples, if, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you better get out of town, it's because the disciples might have had this conviction that, that God's not going to let Jerusalem be destroyed. But Jesus is indicating indeed that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now, but, verse 24 begins, in those days, after that tribulation, this, it's a strong contrast. The, the word but here in Greek uh, means a strong contrastive. Uh, Greek has two ways of saying the word but. Uh, one's a kind of a more general uh, conjunction. I said this, but he said that. Uh, the word here, however, is a strong contrastive. But in those days, after that tribulation, meaning after the Jerusalem has been destroyed, no indication as to how long after those days. Just It's just after that tribulation time. Uh, then what's going to happen is you're going to see uh, uh, false prophets and false Christs are going to come, and they're going to try to deceive the elect, but that's not going to be the end. Jesus is going to say, after that tribulation, uh, then you're going to see the sign of the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, the sun's going to be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and then they're going to see this, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, the second question, the, the second part of Jesus' answer is now going to follow in verses 28 through 31. So Jesus' first part was an indication uh, of things that are going to happen before the end comes, but they're not necessarily going to be an indication of the end itself. The first things that are going to happen are going to be uh, things that are normal course of events, war, false messiahs and wars and natural disasters and then persecution. Those themselves are not an indication of the end, meaning the end of Jerusalem. What's going to be an indication of the end of Jerusalem is going to be what's called the abomination that makes desolation. Uh, as Luke says, Rome being, uh, Jerusalem being surrounded by armies of Rome. Now, the second part of Jesus' answer, of Jesus' uh, uh, response to the disciples' question is going to be, what about the signs of your coming? What about the timing of these events? Jesus says in verse 28, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
Now the fig tree loses its leaves in the winter and only blossoms later on in the spring. When the branch of the fig trees are soft and the leaves begin to appear, one can be certain that summer is near. Verse 29, Jesus continues, Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he, or it, is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The reference to these things in verse 29 uh, and again in verse 30 is likely a reference back to verse 4. When will these things happen and what will be the sign of their coming? Uh, of their coming? That means verses 29 and 30 are telling us that, that the destruction of the temple is going to happen within a generation. This generation will not pass away until these things take place. That was the very question of the disciples. When will these things happen? And the answer is told in verse 30. Not in, this generation will not pass away which would mean a reference probably to a 40-year period of time. Biblically speaking, a generation is always 40 years. The generation in the wilderness of Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then they died off, and the new generation enters into the Promised Land. Note, interestingly, that Jesus dies, I believe, in the year 30 A.D., and that Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome in the year 70 A.D., exactly 40 years later. So, when will these things happen, the disciples had asked? And the answer is, that within a generation, this generation will not pass away. But then verse 32 says, but of that day, the that day now appears to be a reference to Jesus' second coming or Jesus' return, something the disciples wouldn't initially have understood. Again, they were connecting the destruction of Jerusalem with Jesus' being crowned the king. We only know from history, and the disciples find out within weeks later, that Jesus being crowned king is going to happen in Jerusalem when he's crucified. Rome's going to destroy Jerusalem 40 years later, and then Jesus is going to come back at some time in the future. Well, when that day is going to happen? Jesus answers, of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but their Father alone. Even though Jesus is fully God and fully man, in his humanity, Jesus doesn't know everything. And one of the things he doesn't know is the hour of his return. The Father has fixed that day, as Scripture says. And Jesus does not know when it's going to return. Now note again, verse 33. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It's like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigned to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Note, again, the continued references to the disciples need to be steadfast and alert. Take heed, keep on the alert in verse 33. Be on the alert again in verse 35. Be on the alert again in verse 37. There's a demand for vigilance because the disciples don't know the hour of Jesus' return. These last five verses will be especially important for Mark's readers. After all, the disciples are, are told the time of the, of the destruction of the temple, but we don't know the time of, our, of Jesus' return. Therefore, be on your guard. Five times Jesus says, see or be awake or watch. Note, of course, the five times in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14 that the disciples fail to watch. What does this mean for us? Well, it's simple. Jesus is the new temple. Fulfilling the old temple and its requirements, Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice has become the new temple of God. Now, Paul's going to go on and throughout the New Testament to tell us that we are also the temple of God, climaxing, of course, in the new Jerusalem. But we don't know the hour of Jesus' return. 
And therefore, we are to keep watch. We're to be on the alert. Matthew's gospel tells us what keeping watch and being on the alert looks like. And that means taking care of one another, of God's people, teaching them and feeding the sheep and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.